welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to episode 176. We're now on the other side of Memorial Day. Summer's officially here, and for many of us, like we really button down and start getting prepared and excited for fall hunting seasons after Memorial Day. It's uh, such a great time. In this episode, we're talking about elk hunting, and specifically solo elk hunting. We not only cover tactics in terms of the hunt itself and calling, we also get into really do you, should you hunt elk solo? You get an elk on the ground, you realize how big it is, how much work it is to take care of that animal, uh, to pack that animal. It's a big deal. So elk solo, can you do it? Should you do it? How should you do it? We answer some of those questions today. Our guest is Will Myers. He's had success hunting elk solo, which you'll hear about. uh, And he's not even sure he'd do it again. Not ruling it out, but he'd also say maybe it isn't the best choice, and we talk about that. You can contact Will on Instagram. He's at ID underscore archery hunts. If you want to get in contact with him, send him a message there. Just go see what he's up to. Go check that out. Also, if we talk about elk hunting, it's worth mentioning the University of Elk Hunting online course from elk101.com. So you can go to elk101.com forward slash online course, or you can hit the link in the description for this episode and check out what is truly the most comprehensive, best resource to learn all about elk hunting online. You can use the code EXO20 to save $20 if you sign up for the course. And this course is going to take you A to Z, covering elk hunting, everything from picking a state, picking a unit, identifying country, knowing where to go, and then knowing what to do when you get there. So it covers calling, it covers tactics, it covers weapons, it covers seasons, like you name it, it's in there. It's a great resource to check out. Also want to give a shout out to Greg Wagner for the review on this podcast. And Greg, send us your shipping information to podcast at exomountaingear.com so we can send you some Hunt Backcountry and Exo Mountain Gear swag. And listeners, to get into these giveaways, it's real simple. Just leave us your feedback. So if you can leave us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast platform you use, we'd certainly appreciate it. Or you can contact us directly with a show idea or suggestion to podcast at exomountaingear.com via email. Finally, another giveaway. This month, May of 2019, just a couple of days left to enter as this episode is released. We're giving away a subscription to Onyx Maps as well as a custom holster from Ivory Holsters. So go do it now, like hit pause right now, because you only have a little bit of time. Go to xomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, hit the giveaway link. It only takes a second to enter, so do that today. All right, let's dive into this show discussing solo elk hunting with Will Myers. Will, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate you having me here. Yeah, it's uh, anytime we can talk about elk hunting, I'm in. Yeah, same as I. <laughs> so just go ahead and uh, give some listeners some context, uh, personal hunting background, anything you feel like sharing that can help listeners get to know you a little bit. Totally. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a mountain town. It's more of a tourist town uh, in Idaho. And um, I grew up basically just living in the mountains with my dad, going on hikes, camping out, doing some high mountain fishing. Um, always was hunting, but has uh, never popped the, the trophy. So it's more like your kind of typical driving up the road type hunting uh, as growing up as a kid with my dad. But yeah, uh, always just an active kid living in the mountains. Um, I wasn't too, I guess I wasn't too passion, passionate about hunting as I am now back then. It kind of just grew on me over the years and, and I did 
move away from Idaho for five years. And I guess that kind of passion when I moved away, it was just missing the mountains and missing the lakes and the rivers and the streams. And it drew me back. And then my passion was tenfold even deeper than it, than it was back then. Hmm. What part of the country did you move to for a bit? Um, I was living in California. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Went to school over there and then came back. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's kind of a situation of you don't know what you have till it's gone type thing. Exactly. You know, I didn't really know any difference and didn't really knew and appreciate appreciate as much as I did until I left. Yeah. So after college is when you moved back and kind of got into the hunting a little bit more serious and probably started going a little bit further, deeper off the roads, that type of thing. Yeah, I came back and all, all my best friends who did stay here, you know, they were they were like, dude, you got to pick up a bow. Like you got to <laughs> in September with us because I never I never bow hunted until I until I moved back yeah um, it was really hard also to even hunt elk uh, because where I grew up was only a dry area for rifle and that's all I grew up doing was rifle hunting with my dad and um, being such a young age my dad and I it was tough for us to even hunt elk because we just didn't really have the strength and my dad's like there's no way I mean yeah I, I killed a spike uh, elk one time I had a rifle tag and ended up ended up doing it and it was the hardest pack out I have ever experienced in my life up until this story here that's about to tell but um how old were you for that one when you killed that spike I think I was 15 and I was also by myself um but luckily I was able to run back to the trailhead and and jump in my truck and drive a little ways out and start calling my dad and his friends and whoever else we could try to gather up <laughs> help me but it was um it was crazy experience for sure yeah that's cool so what are what are some of the things that stick out in terms of you started bow hunting uh and then started archery elk hunting obviously with that after college uh it was the same for me actually kind of in that time frame what are some of the lessons that stand out maybe some of the early stories or mistakes or just some some of the things you learned from from that time um as far as when i had a bow in my hand yeah just like that process of becoming a bow hunter um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it had to do with just like practice and fine tuning your, sh your shot sequence. I mean, there's so much more room for air with a bow than there is a rifle. Um, so, I mean, I could, I could talk about tons of, tons of mistakes. Um, are you talking about like specific examples with elk or how? Yeah, just anything that comes to mind. Just kind of curious about, you know, everybody who goes through that process in those early years. And I know that there's listeners hearing this right now who are in those early years of making mistakes. Um, and part of that is you're going to make mistakes period. And part of that is, I think we can obviously learn from others. So I just didn't know if anything came to mind in terms of, uh, um, yeah, you know, just those mistakes you make early on either just bow hunting in general or archery elk hunting specifically. Yeah. Um, I think just kind of basically second practicing enough to where it's basically second nature to you to knock an arrow with basically you're not even thinking about it you know you're not having to sit there and look uh look down at your string and trying to knock and and it should just basically be second nature for you so early on mistakes was it wasn't necessarily sitting on a target and looking at it and then shooting and, and getting you know a close ring 10 or 12 you're like oh yeah nice i'm shooting really well well you, you know, when you're shooting in the mountains, it's completely different and that's not going to be good enough. You know, being able to do it second nature, having a conversation with your buddy, you know, drawn back, giving it two seconds and smoking all, you know, eight, five arrows to the 10 to 12 ring, you know, then you're actually getting somewhere. So I think early on mistakes was um, confidence in your shooting and thinking your abilities is, is pretty dialed when, you know, you're not even you're not even close. Yeah, so we're going to kind of get into the story about a, a certain hunt that you had and a pack out and pull some lessons from that hunt. Before we get to the hunt, I'm just curious, you know, that we get more questions than anything, I would think, on scouting, on picking a spot, finding an area, on using resources like Google Earth and Onyx. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just always good to hear uh, different perspectives on, on all those topics. So how do you look at that? How do you start to scout and kind of identify plan A, plan B, plan C, what tools are you using? How are you using those tools? Um, just, yeah, just kind of walk us into that process of what that looks like for you. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. Um, to kind of give you a brief, 
uh, friends and I, we have now hunted in four different units the last four different years. So we've basically chosen different units each year or scouted at least different units each year. And kind of depending on what we're feeling, uh, we'll try to put in for that tag or, or, you know, show up to get that tag or put, you know, just do the over counter tags, which we've been doing, but all different units. So it's been awesome to be able to get that experience in and knowing different terrain, but how I go about scouting one huge one is Google earth. I'm always looking on Google earth because obviously none of us really have the time to be going out all the time when we want to. So um, Google Earth is is one, and then overlaying it with Onyx maps and knowing where all the trail systems are. Um, I also look up um, motorcycle motorcycle and ATV trails. So I'm always constantly looking on IdahoTrails.com, motorized trails, and, and knowing like where horseback trails are, and just kind of getting a perspective of what the train looks like elevation and then knowing where like horseback trails are, ATV trails, motorcycle trails are, um, or non-authorized trails can be to first now kind of hone in. Okay. Now I can separate, you know, where the least amount of trails are or where some access trails are and, and knowing that, okay, now I can kind of zoom in and start looking at the train features of basins and water and, um, different types of coverage and, and timber patches um, so when I basically have gotten mapped out some good areas, then I try to set aside some time to actually go physically visit them. And I can look at, see if there are elk signs in there. Um, so when I go into an area, when I'm finally able to, um, I'm really looking for, you know, rubs, like really old rubs or consistent rubs from generations before, whether it was, you know, two years ago, three years, and it looks like a consistent pattern where, you know, elk are rutting in that area. Um, and I'm looking for bedding areas and water and stream and just scat and just looking to see if it's going to be a good condition come September. Cause a lot of the elk really aren't, you know, they're always choosing different areas and depending on when the season is. Um, so I, that's kind of one big aspect of it. And depending on what I see and like how much I see, you know, I'll mark it down as an A or a B B spot. And then, you know, when I have time, I'll look at another spot and just basically say, okay, this had more, this had less rubs, this had less boot tracks, this had less people to trailhead. Um, and that's kind of how we have done it in the past and marking, okay, this looks like an actually, you know, money spot. And this, you know, this is too easy of an access to get in here, even though there's good sign, let's make this a plan B spot. Like it. When you, when you're picking out trails and roads and all that, um, and kind of looking for those pockets where there's not those disturbances, are you automatically focused on, let's get as far away from that as possible? Or are you thinking we don't necessarily have to go as far away from those roads or trails possible. Let's just think about how that terrain's laid out in terms of where it might, um, give elk some sanctuary or some security, even if it's not as far as possible from the road. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no, exactly. And that's exactly, exactly how I do it. It doesn't really necessarily matter if it's only a mile off the road or two miles off the road. If the train is, is gnarly and you're going up and over a basin and then you're dropping in and it's a switch back and it's, you know, it's still, it's only a mile in, but that's going to cut a lot of people off. And a lot of people, you know, they look at trails, but then they also want to look at how the easy it is or how hard and difficult it's going to be, um, as well as the S of the train around it. If it's really gnarly and steep and there's some really big basins in there and it just seems to be a difficult situation to maneuver, whether you're on a horse, whether you're on a motorcycle um, or even on foot, that I look into more than how far the trail goes and how much country I can go back into. It's you know more about the, the easy accessibility of it. Hmm. Gotcha. So you've hunted these four different units or at least scouted these four different units over a handful of years and you're picking out different spots in that unit. What does it look like for you come hunting season when you're getting into one of these areas and you're, you're going to plan a and you have plan B, C, et cetera. How much time do you give plan a when you're there? If things aren't panning out uh, or you're maybe not hearing as much or seeing as much fresh shine as you maybe had hoped, how much time do you give that? You know, I always try to give myself at least like two days at minimum um, but for example, like this year was the first year that it happened to me. Um, all the other spots seem to have planned out really well, but this spot and my plan A, basically it was, 
it was really high elevation, really high terrain. It was basically like a waterfall just to get access into, you're like climbing up in. And then all of a sudden it's just a plateau, beautiful meadows. And you, I mean, there's no way you can get horses in there. There was no trails, no access. And so I, I considered it my, my a spot. Cause when I got up there it was, it just looked money. I mean, it looked really well. I think with the dry season that we had just this past year, I spend, you know, basically two days, 72 hours to at least cover enough ground and be able to, you know, let out bugles or cow call and be able to traverse enough terrain to see if there's fresh sign or hear anything. And if I don't, I'm, I'm chalking it up and I'm, I'm out of there. Would you like, so this year's an example about how many different spots in that unit did you sort of actually have like targeted that you had as options before you had to go okay now i have to completely figure out a new spot right was that just a couple was it a handful no it was, that was like that was literally it uh okay. i only had yeah that one spot in that area okay cool um so yeah solo um elk and solo there's quite a bit to talk about here is from your personal experience why solo for you were you solo hunting on purpose because you wanted to you mentioned some buddies was it just a schedules and things didn't align like what led you to hunting elk solo yeah i mean that's exactly it it was definitely scheduling um it was scheduling and also differences on where we wanted to go so mainly it was because other additional buddies had to work or i had this week off and we didn't plan it earlier or someone got called in and they got to work that coverage that time frame and then another was like well you know we've hunted so many different places and so many different units you know i really want to hunt this area again or i want to go check out that area and so it was basically there's just a lot of enough differences where it was just like well all right you know this is the only time frame that i have this is the only time frame i can get off um i had a ton of weddings this year so the time frame that my buddies really wanted to to go in, I, I wasn't able to. So I knew I, I was going in solo. Was this your first year hunting solo, like backcountry multi-day stuff? Um, I had, yes, I would say it would be. I've scouted solo, um, but yeah, never, never had I had in-season bow in hand by myself that I can think of. No. That whole process, whether it's hunting or scouting, of just kind of being backcountry, being solo, multi-day stuff. Um, I mean, I think somebody's probably lying if they say that at least in the beginning, that's not a little bit nerve-wracking. How how was that for you? Yeah, um, you know, I, to me, I don't I don't mind it. I don't ever have that issue of um, you know being nerve-wracking. I guess just growing up and camping out with my dad ever since I was you know a young kid. Um, real, real weird story. Well, not weird, I guess, just kind of an experience of growth. Um, when I first killed my first deer with my dad, um, when I was really, really young, he basically, when we were going into the mountains, he would be, Oh, look at this, you know, tree, look at this weird Kirk in this tree, you know, look at this rock pile here. And he's always pointing out these really visual contextual spots of, okay, cool. Like, that's awesome. I didn't really know what he was talking about. Okay. You see how the, you know, the sun setting or do you see this burned area and blah, blah. Well, basically what happened was I ended up shooting my deer. My dad, um, helped me, you know, kind of gut it. And he said, all right. He's like, uh, you remember the way back home and, or back to the truck? And I said, no, not really. Um, he's like, well, do you remember the tree that I was, that I marked off? And do you remember that rock I pointed out? And do you remember all that? He basically took part of the deer and he said, finish, you know, gotten it up, quartering out, and I'll meet you back at the truck. And I, it was like my first time killing a deer, and I'm not even packing it out with my dad. Like, he took half of it and, and balanced while I was working on the rest. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, But I think a lot of it had to do, you know, just I don't know if it was a test. Like, oh, yeah, you know, now you're becoming a man. Or I just want you to be more comfortable, like, being lost or, or alone or something. Because you know, yeah, it wasn't an issue. Like I really thought about it. I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's where that rock was. Okay. That's where that, the hill was. Okay. Yeah. And obviously I can see boot tracks in the ground of when his, his steps were going back and I met my dad back at the truck. And I mean, I was freaking out. I believe when at the time, but really what I took away from it was, you know, just kind of a, a confidence capability of, you know, you know, these mountains are my home and, and I know this stuff. This, this is my backyard. Yeah. That's cool. So man. I guess, 
Yeah. So I guess relating it to, you know, being in the mountains by myself, you know, I've, I've always kind of done it. I was always just hiking, camping, you know, shed hunting by myself out in the mountains. And, um, you know, it's, I knew the layout of the land, just knowing, you know, different peaks. So it was, it was kind of feeling like in my backyard. That's awesome. What's your, so you like this spot, um, that you said you went into for, you know, couple, two, three days and you're solo. So what does that look like for you? Just very logistically, like you're just moving real light and fast with gear and shelter and all that look like for you in terms of a solo setup. Yeah. So, um, I was using a Hudson, uh, TB tarp from Jimmy tarps. It's, you know, two pounds, it's floorless. I use Tyvek, um, a sheath to grab some extra insulation. I throw my pad on, uh, I'm definitely a minimalist. Uh, so I, I go really light, uh, ultra light for sure. And going back into areas, I always have to, you know, okay, is it possible for me to pull an elk out of here solo or a deer out of here solo? Is it going to be too much on me? Cause obviously I'm going to be smarter. Um, and knowing, you know, what my capabilities are a little more on my background, you know, I'm an endurance strength training coach, personal trainer. So I'm avid in, in the gym and in the mountains and constantly at physical fitness. So it, it plays a role on, on knowing my capability and, and having confidence getting in and out of the mountains with an animal. We'll get into this, uh, more in a bit, but I'm just curious. You mentioned like keeping an eye on distance and things like that when you're solo. Do you have kind of a rule of thumb there? Is it just kind of depend on, you know, each trip and the terrain that you're in and things like that? What goes into making uh, a decision process of how far back you can be solo while elk hunting? Yeah, I get definitely the terrain uh, is the biggest aspect. Knowing the type of terrain that I'm in and you know, preventing injuries, knowing that it's okay, that, you know, this isn't too hostile environment. Well, if I twist an ankle or fall down somewhere that I can at least still crawl out of there or at least get to a trailhead where someone's going to see me. Um, I have a spot gene three that I use as well, just as a safety beacon. Um, but I guess, yeah, definitely it doesn't necessarily matter how far back it's more on just the train and landscape of the area. And I would assume that, I mean, heat, especially archery season, like weather terrain yes. can play a factor there in terms of, just giving yourself time uh, and how much time you might have to get that meat out. Exactly. Yep. And that's another uh, huge aspect of it too, as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. We're definitely going to talk more about packing, uh, packing some things out. Cause you have some lessons learned in the story there. Um, before we get into that, just solo hunting in general on, on the elk tactics kind of side, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's so much talk of, you know, like caller shooter setups and everything like that and the arc and, distance between a caller and shooter but when you're solo a lot of that goes out the window so what are what are some of the things that you've picked up solo elk hunting um just from a very like tactical level on elk yeah that's an awesome question uh learning from like university of uh hunting online course from Corey jacobson and you know you learn a plethora of information on hunting solo uh so i was i, I use that a lot and i've made so many mistakes even with buddies or even being the caller while your buddy's down the mountain and you're solo and seeing how elk come in. But um, big pull away points is, you know, no matter where you are, wherever you're calling, those elk know exactly where you are. They know exactly which rock you're sitting next to. They, they will pinpoint you no problem. So um, when you're solo, knowing Basically, I always have to listen and, and pay attention to thermals. I mean, you don't listen to thermals, but you pay attention to wind <laughs> and thermals. So I always try to position myself before I call, knowing, okay, well, you know, where are elk most likely going to be in this area? And am I in the right area to start even calling because the wind? Um, so obviously, if wind's blowing up, I always try to position myself way at the top of the mountain. Um, or if the wind's blowing down, I always try to, you know, mid-mountain, below the, the plateaus and bedding areas to start my calling sequence, knowing I can pull them down and use the wind with for me myself. But yeah, calling aspect of it is, you know, I'm always, I try to make myself really loud, like sound like an elk. Cause I think elk are really worry when weary when they come in. Um, if they're not, if you're hearing cow calls and they're hearing bugles, but they're getting closer and they're not hearing it, they really start to think they're like, okay, what's going on here? Um, so I'm always trying to be as loud as possible and just destroying branches and and making my presence known. Um, if I know there's going to be elk in the area, because I don't want to over 
over make too much noise if I can't even hear them. So it is usually cautious. I'm always starting with cow calls. Um, but I always have to move, you know, you're cow calling and then I'll basically move away from that area because if an elk's come in, he's going to pinpoint you and he's got, got you pinned already. So I always try to call and then kind of move, call and kind of move a different area. So, so that's, yeah, that, no, I'm glad, that's great. You brought that up. So you can, um, hearing that and picturing that cause I haven't hunted elk solo. Um, mm. you can basically do like a one man arc, if you will, if you're calling and moving. So if you call the direction you're moving would basically want to simulate that arc, um, type of strategy. So you would go, you know, keep the wind right and basically move away. That would put you in a good position on the lane that the elk might have moved towards the call. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work all the time. Um, but it's definitely at least not going to like have you pinned down yeah. per se. Because you could be moving away from the call and then there's an elk coming from the other side or the behind you. And now he's standing right where you were calling and you're like, oh, man, yeah. you know, he's from behind. So, you know, I can't always you can't always predict where they're going to come from. But at least you're not going to be pinned down. At least you can be like, OK, there's there, he's standing right where I was. And, uh, you know, he's either going to catch your wind here shortly or at least he's going to mosey on away. But he doesn't have you pinned. So when you say call and move and obviously this is going to be variable based off of you know, terrain and coverage and where shooting lanes might be and things like that. But like as a rule of thumb, are you talking about moving 20 yards, 80 yards? I mean, when you call and move, what's kind of a common distance that you would move then? Yeah, typically around 30 to 40 yards for sure. Before you move and even before you call, I would presume, do you have, you already know where you want to move and you've already kind of looked at what shot opportunity that might give you? Yeah. So I'm looking for like shooting lanes and kind of predicting um, and obviously I, I want to, I, I will stick around for, you know, probably 30 seconds to a minute before I really start moving. Cause I'm listening for branches breaking or a distant bugle or, um, you know, just rustling in, in, in the mountains. Cause I want to be able to at least hear where he's coming from. And it, I've, there's just been so many mistakes and encounters that we've had in the past, even with buddies, um, that, you know, it's, it's just, it's not something that I want to risk and, they come in silent, like where we've hunted in the past, the majority of them are coming in silently, you know, especially early season and you don't even expect it. So if you're calling and you're not moving and you're just staying kind of put, um, you know, you'll, you'll kind of hear something snap or twig and you're still standing there listening and listening and sure shoot, they pop up out of a tree and they're, they're coming around the corner and they're staring right at you and yeah. you're, it's, you're, you're toasted, you know, unless you can draw back right then and there. So I'm always kind of listening first. And then I'm going to play my move based on what I'm hearing and, you know, and the wind, of course. Um, but yeah, kind of rule of thumb, 30 seconds to a minute, uh, listening and then kind of moving on and going another 30 yards, getting myself in another shooting lane, or at least getting to an area where I have an advantage point to see more area. When you're covering that, let's call it 30 yards. Are you kind of sneaking in there and being quiet so that you can hear, or is that another situation where you're not worried about making noise because you want to sound more like an elk moving through the woods? Yeah, good question. I'm still staying, trying to stay really, really quiet because I'm still listening for where they're coming in or another bugle from you know a far distance area, and really kind of pinpoint um, the noise that they're going to make first before I I start <laughs> really thrashing around the mountains. You call, you move, you haven't, you don't hear something coming, and you haven't heard a vocal response. But you've mentioned that they can often come in quiet. How much time are you giving that? Um, after you've done a little calling sequence, you've moved to a shooting position. How patient are you at that point? I'm actually really patient compared to my buddies. They're ready to start moving up and over the other mountain. Um, but it's cost us in, in the past. So I honestly, it's like the, it's 15 to 30 minutes for sure. Because if, especially if I let out a, a locator bugle and it's, it's going from the next ridge line and the next basin over, elk can hear that, you know, they can really pinpoint it. So they could be moseying on they could be working their way over but not you know running and gunning and coming right into your call so i know elk are probably slipping in and they're just taking their time so i always try to give it you know 15 to 30 minutes um before before i really start moving out of the area are you throwing throwing out any additional calls in the time or just kind of staying silent um when i when i move uh, when you're giving it that 15 to 30 minutes, um, after that initial call in sequence. Yeah. If I haven't heard anything, I, I always like using a little chuckle, um, 
bull chuckle and of course uh you know five minutes ten minutes i'll do another big locator bugle to see if i've gotten a bull to come at least over the mountain and and get another response back so my sequence is typically cow calls first you know waiting a few minutes not hearing anything then i'll do some chuckles and if i don't hear anything again after a few minutes um then i'll let out a locator bugle and see if i can get a distance bull to respond um and then you know waiting that 10 15 you know obviously moving that next next 30 yards and then uh doing it again or, or waiting around for another 15 minutes and uh yeah I'm, I'm just real patient in the mountains when i'm especially when i'm solo yeah so i want to talk about you know processing elk solo packing elk solo and things like that but before we get to that i just want to hear the the story of the solo um success that you've had here recently before we dive into kind of the nitty-gritty on what went down after the shot what led up to the shot and how did it go down for you on the hunt yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, it was, it ended up being my plan B spot and it was just a spot that we had old trail riding on a dirt bike with the buddies a few years back. And, you know, we stopped to eat lunch along the trail and, you know, I was looking at the area and I'm like, man, this looks like, you know, epic elk country. We should hunt elk here sometime. And buddies, you know, it's like, yeah, it's pretty far back in here. It's kind of rough terrain, you know? Yeah, it's not bad. We'll, you'll we'll mark it on a, on a list, but that, you know, years previously, we never ended up going so I knew of plan B, but I hadn't touched it for a while. And I was so caught on plan A, um, but it ended up being a failure. So I, I went into plan B and I was like, well, I'm going to give it a try. And when I got to the trailhead, there was two trucks there with horse horseback trailers uh, been parked there. And it was September 12th. Um, and it was basically, I was kind of bummed that there is these massive horseback guys that are going back in there um there's only one trail going in there so i knew that they had to be in the vicinity but they, it opens up into a lot of different terrain so i decided to still go in there and i was on my dirt bike so i was able to just go up and over into the basin and then i saw tons of boot tracks tons of horse tracks along the trail and i was like well i'll have to go a little bit further and, and ended up finding a good area and um that evening I gave myself just enough time to run up a hill and let out some bugles and do some cow calling and knock, knock an arrow and, uh, into a bedding area that I thought maybe a, a silent elk would come in and, uh, nothing ever happened. And I got away from some horse track trails and, and basically went back to camp and I was kind of looking at some stuff on Onyx and, and trying to locate, okay, where are these horseback guys are, uh, which train do you think they've already covered? And then I just started to pinpoint an area where I just thought that was, super nasty, some shell rock downfall, um, avalanche shoots, and then some small little plateaus that maybe some elk would be hiding in case like, you know, horse guys have busted them already or, uh, just basically areas where elk might be after they've already been pressured because there was, you know, those two big trucks there with the horse guys. So, so do I you got think, a, sorry, not to cut you off, but do you think like these guys with the horses, they primarily stick to those horse trails specifically and not obviously, obviously they're not going to up an avalanche shoot, but just in general, they're going to stay pretty close to like just the horse trails and maybe a little bit off to either side. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I figured, I mean, it doesn't mean that they can't jump off their horses and do the same thing I'm doing, but I feel like a lot of guys, they, you know, you have to keep your horses kind of nearby in a safety area where you can get to in and out of and, and still be able to get to your elk with your horse. Um, I think they're relying, you know, my thought was maybe they might be relying on them pretty heavily. So they're only going to hunt elk in the area they can get their horses in, um, was just my guess. Yeah. And so, that, yeah, I think that they're, yeah, you know, I, easy areas that looked ideal for elk. I figured that's where they're going. Cause that's originally what I was looking at a map and I'm like, oh, this looks great for elk. Right. Well, I imagine that they're saying the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. So yeah, um, that's kind of what I was looking at maps and then I was just kind of zooming in and looking at little plateaus and just little like little pockets and sanctuaries. There might be a little bit of water and it didn't look ideal compared to where I wanted to go, but I knew that that's probably where those horse guys were probably going is those ideal spots. Um, so I didn't have any luck that evening and I was kind of, I was on the other, one of the other sides. So I switched sides and I was going to go to the Northwest facing timber where it was going to be super dark. Um, and I figure, you know, elk are going to be hiding in the timber in these real heavy, dense areas compared to because of these elk or all these elk hunters and horseback. So that's why I decided to do the next morning. 
um, it was going to one of those areas. And to basically sum it up, I, I got in, I got, it was a real steep terrain. I started hiking up and I saw the horse trip or guys actually passed me on the horse horses in the morning. They went right by my camp at, you know, four 30 in the morning. Um, and they were talking and I heard them and, uh, they were headed down the trail exactly where I wanted to go. And I was like, re looked at my map and I'm like, man, are they going to go to the same area? And, uh, kind of stressed out at first, but I'm like, no, there's no way they're going to want to go into this, this area I decided to pick just cause there's nasty avalanche shoots and there's a lot of rock timber, or I mean, a lot of rocks and, and down timber. So I was like, well, I'll still stick to this little area and just see what I want to see what I find. But yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, started a real steep incline, finally made it to a plateau. I, I didn't, the trail of their horses kept going down and they went into the bigger basin, which I knew exactly where they'd probably be going. And I just picked a spot in between two of the big basins where I figured elk would probably be going. Uh, so basically, yeah, switch back, still steep incline. I made it to the first bedding area. Um, there were lots of rubs in the area and it was just kind of a little gym of a pocket. It didn't look great on a map, but when I got in there, it looked awesome and started my cow call sequence, waited around. And I was actually cow calling on the way up because there was really good fresh rubs and it seemed like elk had been traveling through between the two basins. Um, I just started cow calling and bugling and I didn't get anything, no response, not, not even anything. Um, I was actually, when I got up on top of the hill, I was able to look down in the valley down below and I actually saw the wall tents. There was horses down below. Like it was, it looked like an outfitter's camp. Like it was pretty gnarly. Um, and I could hear the bells. I can hear bells down there from the horses. And I was like, man, I I just don't think elk are going to be hanging out right here because he's got the bells and I can actually hear a, hear a horse still. And I was, you know, it's vertical incline. So I decided to keep going, um, side hill. And I was like, well, I'm going to stay mid mountain because I know the elk aren't going to be at the bottom and I don't think they're going to be hanging out up top because there's, I know the horses can maneuver up top. So I'm just going to stay mid mountain and see what happens. And, um, within probably finally an hour, it was like, a I don't know, 11 45, almost 12, it was 11, 11 45 or so. I still hadn't had anything and I got into a good bedding area. It smelled like elk. And that's when I knocked an arrow and I was like, okay, well, it smells like elk in here. I'm going to knock an arrow. And I, I always end up knocking an arrow just because there's been so many instances in the past where we've called in elk silently and you just turn around you hear a branch break and there's an elk standing there and it's the raghorn bull just like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, so, so many missed opportunities. So yeah, I won't learn from my mistakes and knock an arrow and doing the call sequence. And after about, 15, 20 minutes, um, I started m- moving and then I heard like raking going on. I heard a tree just getting destroyed. And I was like, that sounds like a bull elk raking a tree. Um, and so I kind of positioned myself a little bit upwind because the wind was already switched. It was already going up, upwind. So I was like, well, I'm going to hightail it up here a little further. I only went about 30 yards above. And then I started raking a tree and um doing the exact same thing back and then i stopped and listened and did a little cow cow call and when when i know there's a bull coming around i never like to call towards the bull because that obviously will pinpoint you even worse and i always want to make my sound distance especially if you're solo so i actually turned around and faced the other direction to do my cow calling and did a couple chirps and he still didn't sound off um and then i i wasn't quite sure where he was going to come from and out of nowhere he popped out and i think the raking had had him to begin with already start moving and when i turned around and started cow calling i only moved probably like five feet and all of a sudden i saw antlers coming through the timber and i was like oh shoot like he's already right here so i quickly started ranging some some trees and some lanes that i figured he'd be coming through arrow was already knocked and he comes in quartering two at like 50 yards and um I, I knew I was kind of screwed. Like he already almost basically had, he had me pinned. Um, and he's looking over at, in my direction and, you know, he's not seeing a bull raking. He's not seeing any cows. And so, you know, he immediately starts, he just stops kind of looking, listening. He smelled the ground and, uh, I didn't have a shot at, at 52 yards and he starts circling up and around me. And I knew that's what he would do. And the entire time he was always positioning himself quartering two. And it wasn't an ethical shot. Um, I drew back twice on him. He went behind a tree. I drew back. I was holding on him, holding on him. Didn't have a good shot at like 40-something yards. 
and he's still circling around me. Now he's behind some bushes. And I had to let down my bow. He walks out, goes behind another branch, draw back again. And I was like, well, it's only going to be seconds now or he's, you know, almost above me. And he stops right behind this little tree and I'm, <laughs> I'm holding it full draw again. And uh, he's staring right down in my area like, okay, I'm not seeing anything. And sure enough, finally, he, the wind is blowing up and he gets some kind of smell of me and he turns around and bolts the exact same way he just came in. Uh, it's a nice little six point bull. And I was like, man, that was cool. Like I bust some ass off all day. I got horse guys around me and I had, I had a bull come in within like, you know, probably 45 minutes. Yeah. But it was a cool experience. Heck yeah. When you, you went into, you, I think you mentioned at one point, you, you know, you said you smelled the elk and you're in a bedding area and you did a calling sequence. Like, what does that look like for you? What is a calling sequence? Was that mainly just cow calls at that point, being in a bedding area, not having a vocal bull? Yeah. I always, you know, it's, if it, you kind of just, I have to play it off on what I hear if I get a response, but if I'm not really getting a response, my, my normal, nor normal sequence is just a couple soft cow calling. If I don't hear anything, I'll do an asterisk cow call really to just see if I can get a bull to really stand up or get out of his bedding area to really kind of, uh, respond back to me. If I haven't gotten anything after the normal cow calling and asterisk cow calling, um, then I will do a, you know, a soft chuckle and I'll actually start raking a tree. Um, and you know, chuckling is, you know, a vocalization for bulls. It's kind of either like, you know, you're talking to your cows, uh, you know, it could just play a role. It's not like you're really angry or anything. It just kind of signifies that, you know, he's talking to other elk. So if there's another bull in the area and he hears an elk chuckle, you know, it's usually it's cause he's talking to other cows or another bull or something like that. And so it's another aspect of trying to get another bull to really get fired up or to, to let out a, a bugle of some sort. And then if I don't hear anything after a minute, uh, maybe 30 seconds of the chuckle, I'll actually let out a, a long locator bugle knowing that it doesn't sound like there's any elk in nearby area. Let's broaden my vocalization and let's go full, um, locator bugle and see if I can get one to sound off from a distance. Yeah. So cool. it's, yeah, it's usually a minute or two in between each other. Yeah. So you're starting kind of more subtle, more direct to like what potentially is immediately around you and kind of just gradually, you know, I don't exactly. want to say ramping up intensity, but also kind of broadcasting further and further. Yeah, exactly. So this bull busts and uh, where do things go from there? So um, I was starving. It was almost like noon. So I was like, well, let me just give it a second. I'm going to grab some food out of my pack and uh, kind of just digest the situation and write down some notes here. I mean, I, I've, I didn't have a notepad, but mentally I was taking down notes. Um, and got a little bit of food in me and I'm like, okay, I'm going to give it some time. And, uh, my trend, I basically had a route mapped to go across mid mountain and stay mid mountain and just kind of stay to the next bedding area. Um, and that's what I was going to stick to. So grabbed my stuff after lunch and then I was like, well, this bull kind of went in the same direction that I was already planning heading. So I'll just follow his tracks. Um, and so I followed his tracks mid mountain and then I kind of lost it in this area. I found a wallow and, um, a couple good rubs and a little deep ravine. It was nice and damp and cold water resource. So I was like, well, I'm just going to follow this game trail and cut mid mountain and basically do the same thing. And it basically led me into another bedding area. So basically it's almost the exact same setup. There was a little bedding area, a little bit of opening, um, looked like a good little spot where I can really send sound out a locator bugle and get a good vocalization out to the mountains. So knocked an arrow again, smelled like elk. It was almost basically the same sequence. Did the same thing. Cow called, um, soft cow calling, um, some chuckles, didn't get any response. And the wind was still blowing up. I still had a little bit of elevation before it went to the top and gave it a few minutes, like 15 minutes. You know, I let out a, a locator bugle. Then I waited the 15 minutes because I know if elk are coming, I got to give them some time to start making their way over here. And sure enough, within 30 minutes, it was probably only five minutes after my locator bugle, um, I heard branches breaking again, diagonally down from me. And it was more of like an elk walking. And I, I killed my bull the year previously on the same setup. What happened was I had buddies calling above me and I heard branches breaking and it didn't really sound like an elk that much, but I was like, well, the wind's blowing, so I'm going to get down further. And sure enough, it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. So I took that instance where I heard this branch break and I'm like, well, I'm not going to sit around here to wait any longer. I'm going to move. So I turned around, 
called away from me, did a couple um, cow calls, soft cow calls, and then I took off. And I was like, well, there's, I'm going to get in the middle of this opening, and there's a little rock cropping, and I'm just going to stand right in this rock cropping and see what happens. I'm not going to take any more chances. I already screwed it up you know, a half an hour ago. So I did a couple cow calls. I didn't even wait to hear anything, and I just took off into the rocks and stood right in the middle of this wide opening area. And then I started ranging trees from where the last, I was like, well, if this elk's coming up, he's going to want to circle around, do the exact same thing what this elk just did. And I immediately just started ranging a couple trees, ranging areas that he might come through. And sure enough, I saw antler tips, antler tips coming towards me. I'm like, oh yeah, here it comes. Um, and sure enough, this bull is looking across. I, w- I had probably moved a good 40 yards, maybe 35 yards. And he comes through the timber and he's looking right to where I was just cow calling and he has no idea I'm standing there and he's facing basically quartering to me, but he's looking across the draw from where I was just cow calling. Like he immediately already knows he's going to start circling up and around me. Um, and it looked like the same bull and I, um, he started kind of slowly coming in. He stopped in the timber. I, he was probably a good 50 yards again. I didn't have a shot, but he was looking over, smelled the ground looking right over to where I was cow calling, same thing. And uh, I knew a couple of trees where he was going to be walking towards and he just starts circling up around. Like he'd stopped, looked over, noticed he didn't see any elk, no chuckling, no raking, nothing going on. So he's, you know, cautious. And I think a lot because of these horse hunters too. I mean, these elk were definitely pressured. So he immediately starts circling up around me and little does he know, he's actually walking right to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, the trees that I had just ranged, 35 yards away. I was like, well, if he walks right behind this tree and starts coming this way, I'm going to draw back. And that's exactly what happened. He walks right behind that tree. I'm in full draw. I got my 30 yard pin on him. He's still down below me a little bit, but he's walking right on me. So it's basically is a perfect frontal shot and just aimed center chest on the line and let an arrow fly and just smoked it right into his chest. Um, and he had no idea what was coming. He had no idea what happened. I didn't even cow call. Um, he was just on a straight line to me. He basically flips around real fast and I just see blood squirt the trees and he takes like 10 feet booking it and he runs straight into a tree and he hits the ground, um, struggles to get back up. And you can just see he's, he was a real, real, real steep, um, hillside that we were on and he has his equilibrium was just completely off and he just goes, downhill sideways just running in the air and hits another tree and spins around and folds over the other side and i can't see him anymore but i can hear him kicking around and he expires within 20 seconds wow crazy man yeah it was wild i thought it was the same bull uh just the way that he was coming towards me i couldn't really see but yeah he ended up being a different bull that's pretty wild that that same bull obviously kind of the same script right even smelling the ground and everything yeah no it was it was yeah, that's why I thought it was the same bull. It was bizarre. As yeah, with those me. little cues like that that were so similar. Yeah. Huh. So here you are solo, um, bull down. Obviously, we're skipping over the fact that you're elated beyond belief and everything else <laughs> like that. But um, I want to get into some of the nitty gritty on this. So here you are, miles from the rig, bull down. Um being solo like where do you begin because even just like elk can end up in crazy crazy weird positions um when they expire and the thought of moving one solo is unbelievable how how was this guy positioned was he in a way where you could kind of get started working on him right away did you kind of have to try and finagle him a bit um how did that go down (laughs) Yeah, um, I definitely had to finagle him a little bit. He's His antlers had kind of hooked into a, a branch. He was on a real steep slope, somehow managed to, to stay put. But I didn't really have to do much because we were such on a steep incline. But all I had to do was get his antlers out of the out of the bush and turn his neck, mm-hmm. basically, you know, like a... Uh, like a cow, basically just rotate his head. And he was, I saw some trees down below. So I'm like, well, he's going to run into one of these trees that I can use to my advantage. Um, and <laughs> I turned his head and yeah, he just rolls over a few times and then smashes up against another tree. Yeah. Uh, and then I just basically started kind of building an area where I can really get around him and, and use to start quartering him up. Yeah. 
So you had gravity. You weren't solo. You had gravity as your best friend on that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's cool. One, one good aspect of it. Get super detailed on how you prepare to start breaking this thing down solo. Are you kind of making an area to work in? Are you laying things out? Are you picking out trees to use? Like how do, cause especially solo, I mean, you have to go about this in a pretty smart way. Yeah, no. And you know, it's like, obviously, you know, it's, I haven't been doing this for years and years and years. So, you know, it'll be great to find out later down if how I could do it better, improve or, see what I was doing wrong. Cause you know, I'm no expert at this. Um, what I actually did, I remember there was a tree right next to him a little bit lower that I actually ended up starting like kind of creating a little flatter area and put some sticks and logs down to kind of almost build like a table almost. And then I basically just pulled his antlers around that tree and let him roll to the next one. Um, but I use uh, paracord 151 and basically I can, you know, cut the part of the back of the leg and, and loop string around it. And then I'll throw a string up and over the branch so I could really hoist the leg up so I could really start cutting it instead of having your buddy hold it. Um, and, and it's a lot easier. I basically use string to do it, but yeah, my layout, I always, you know, have to pull everything out first knife game bags, all that. Um, and I will use the tree to my advantage as far as bringing a leg up in the air and being able to cut it off and, and hoist it. And the way my buddies and I have always done it is, you know, three guys, two guys around a leg and you're cutting it away. And, um, yeah, obviously the hide you're, you're, we do cut down basically the back strap and then fold it down all the way down to the legs and, and cut it off. So it's nice and clean. Uh, there's so many ways to debone it. Um, but yeah, using a tree to your advantage, tying a string around it, hoisting a leg uh, in the air, and then kind of pulling on it every time it gets loose. You just basically will start pulling it down a little further, tie it off around another branch. Um, so you kind of use it as a levy, kind of a lever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The tree, you're like making a little type pulley system basically yeah. with the tree. Yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. real specific on like, do you use a certain to not to tie things off or are you just getting it secure? I mean, I, I have a fishing background, so I've used like fishing knots and I don't really know the names of them, but I've, I've experienced a little bit here and there on, on certain, um, I don't know the name of it. Um, but yeah, it's something kind of, it's like a bow knot almost where you can basically pull it off and, and it's not going to just cinch down. You're never going to get it out, but yeah, something that's easy for me to just kind of loop the string around, tie it around itself. And then I can just pull the opposite side and let it, let it undo. Um, so I don't get myself in a bind or have to cut it. But yeah, kind of levy system for sure. On on, I usually always do the hindquarters first because they're the heaviest. So while I have the energy, I might as well uh, go balls to the walls on the heaviest aspect of it. So yeah, hind hindquarters first. Yeah, that's good. I haven't uh, done an elk solo, but even on some deer solo, I've done something similar. And then what's kind of cool with this method is you're pulling and adding more tension, and you obviously get to the point where you separate at that hip joint, and now that leg is free. It's already tied off, so eventually. You know, you can be taking meat off and then it's loosening, you're tightening it, you're pulling. And eventually you essentially have that quarter just hanging in the tree already, which is really nice. Yeah, and that's exactly what I did. Kind of let it hang there for a little bit. And then I can, after I'm, I'm working on another leg and I'm almost about to, you know, I use another string, another paracord doing the same thing. Um, then I will, after it's been hanging there for a little while, then I'll grab the game bag, tie it up, and then I can bring it down and, start laying it down on a rock or a log and then use that same string on the next leg or the front leg. So yeah, exact same thing. Kind of let it, leave it hanging in the, hanging in the tree. You're essentially boning that out completely, right? Like you're just yeah. going full gutless and boneless. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another aspect uh, I didn't really mention when I have it hanging in the tree, then I just basically start cutting, deboning all the meat around it, starting from the ankle joint, going all the way up to the, to the rump and the, and the roast um, and let it, and I'm basically letting it all hang on itself and then I'll have that game bag kind of below it, kind of halfway, you know, get the game bag around it, keep cutting until basically it's going to fall off and it's going to go straight into that game bag. Yeah. Perfect. Any more like the actual, before we get to packing and situating loads and things like that, any other specific, um, things that come to mind to share with listeners on the actual breakdown of the elk? Obviously being solo, you want to get it off the bone as quickly as possible, depending on, you know, temperature as well. So I always try to do one whole side first and leave it hanging, 
let the blood drain, kind of let it cool down. You always want it to try to keep it in the shade. Obviously, if you're using a tree, it's you're most likely going to be in the shade. Um, and then once you have that one whole side done, I do the gutless method too. So I'm, I'm pushing down and grabbing the tenderloins out, and I'll I'll lay it over its antlers or I'll lay it over another branch just to cool the meat down. So the core temperature is is you know it's not going to spoil by any means. And then I'll be able to rotate the elk pretty easily. Um, by rotating its hip and the other leg that's got, and then I'll flip it back over on the other side. Then the, the meat that's hanging, obviously, then I'll start to debone it and put it in game bags. But yeah, I always work with try to do it as quickly as possible, get the meat off the bone, let it cool down as quickly as possible to be the biggest kind of tip that yeah. I know. Yeah, cool. So you wrap up, you got a, a couple hundred plus pounds of delicious game meat in bags. Uh, now you're solo and you have to get all of that out of there. So there's so much that comes to mind here. Um, first of all, just talk about picking a route. So how do you go? I got to get from point A to point B solo, heavy. Not only is it difficult physically, but it just can be dangerous. Um, so what do you what do you look at in terms of picking out a route to actually get out of there? Yeah, so I go right back to you know, my Google Earth or Onyx map, and I'll look and see at elevation and 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 like basically the traverse the line that I can draw that's going to be the easiest where I don't have to do a whole lot of back up and out and more you know side hilling cutting the trail off you know cutting my travel time in half but still not putting myself in the bottom of a canyon uh, where I can't get out of so that's the one thing I did was after that was all in game bags I basically looked at the meat okay which trips am I going to go on Um, and then the route was you know okay it seems like if I can at least get up to this section here, I'm at least on a good bedding area or, you know, flat plateau mesa area where I can traverse across back the hillside um, and get to this point before any major incline or decline. And I wanted to do what I felt method worked best for this situation was, you know, the, what we call the Idaho, Idaho uh, city shuffle. And it's basically you're just shuttling meat halfway and going back, grabbing it half and then coming back to your next point and choosing the point would basically be any major elevation gain or change that you have to do before you have to make a major descent or an incline climb. So it's like, well, if I can get it to at least halfway and at this point, I'm not exerting too much energy. So I found that on a map and I was like, well, this will be my drop point. And I'm just going to basically take half the elk to this point and drop it. And I'm going to go back for the next half. And, um, mentally I think it, it allows you, it's like, okay, you're almost there. Okay. You're almost there. You know, you're almost there. It's not like you're taking one whole load and and going the full way out because you, you can see how much distance you really have to go and it can really exert you mentally and physically. One thing, uh, when you and I talked about this for the show a little bit that you mentioned in passing, I thought was really, really smart. So if you're doing the shuffle method and you, you know, you go from here to there, but on the way back, as you're coming back to get another load of meat, you can actually kind of verify your route and make sure, okay, was this actually the best way to get to that drop point? Or should I kind of try this? Um, Because now you're unloaded, you know, you're kind of taking a little bit of break, if you will, but you can kind of just see, you know, is there is like another way to try type thing, which is, I think, really, really smart. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the route that you pick based on the map of what you saw you know, was that really ideal? It seemed like there was a lot of blowdown in this section. I had to go all the way around this big tree um, in the, on the way back. You know, is, is there an easier route and or is there a game trail I can find that's going to, you know, help me? So, yeah, I was able to – I had little orange taper mark that I hung in trees, so I knew kind of the route. First, I knew where I, my drop point was. And then, two, if I found, like, a good game trail, even when I was packing meat, I'm like, oh, there's a game trail right up here. You know, I just took 10 more feet up, and I'm on a game trail. I marked it. So yeah, it ended up being a pretty dang good route and I ended up keeping it, um, and followed that game trail back out. And yeah, I mean, I, I cut a little bit more time, you know, just like the example I use, there's a big down tree that I literally couldn't get over. Um, if we were in a little higher, if I stayed a little higher, I was able to just beeline it across and, and make it back to the second load a little bit better. So yeah, that's what I did. With the shuffle method, basically how many different loads did you have, um, you know, heavy loads to shuffle this? Was it like three trips? Yeah, I did. I did it in two loads. So I took half the elk, um, and bow to one point, And then I went back, took half the elk and head, 
um, for the second load. And my method, I don't know if it's right or not, but I figured, okay, well, um, I'm going to go with the heaviest load first. So I took majority of the elk and actually I took majority of the elk and head. No, I took majority of the elk and bow because I knew going in first, if there was had to go through trees and branches and antlers getting caught. Um, I did that the first load and I took basically, it was basically the heaviest, the first. And then the second was a little bit lighter. Um, and I mean, not really lighter. <laughs> it's a half an <laughs> Um, and then got to my plan B spot. And while my legs were fresh, I went strong, heavier first. And then, you know, going back, I did a whole nother two miles back to where the elk was, grabbed the second load and then made it back to my uh, drop point. And then knowing that, okay, I've already done 4.5 miles just to kill my elk. Now I've done these back and forth miles. That's another four miles there. I know my legs are pretty toasted. So I went a little bit lighter load. So I took um, majority of the elk, like half the elk and then back straps, tender lines. And I took my boat with me down and out. So it was a little bit lighter load uh, coming out back to camp because I've been hiking all day and knowing I'll have fresh legs the next morning for the heavier load. So I went a little lighter on my way back um, to camp. So that was kind of my method to madness. Um, and I left the head up there with the rest of the elk and took half of it down. And I did the same thing, kind of map out, okay, if I can just take this ridge line down, cut across the meadow here, I can get back to the game trail and back up to camp. So yeah, it ended up being, it ended up being 12 miles back to camp. With what you left the head and the rest of the meat overnight, what did you do to kind of set that up overnight? Did you just prop it up on some logs? Did you also leave any you know, like a shirt or anything around to keep predators away, like anything specific on that? Yeah. Um, I just found a really good timbered tree that had a lot of shade to it. Protection. Uh, good question. Um, and there was a couple of branches that stuck out that were real heavy. So I put half the elk resting on it. So if there was any additional blood to drain out of, it can still drop below itself. Um, dug a little tiny hole below it for, you know, blood to kind of sit there and and, and saturate instead of drain somewhere down the mountain case for predators. But yeah, I kind of kept it elevated, let it cool from underneath. It was already cold. It, I mean, it took me two and a half hours to debone the entire elk anyways. So meat was good. It was going to be a cold, cool evening anyway. So I wasn't too worried about it. And then I put the elk r- rack right on top of it um, and set the head on top and kind of had the antlers to kind of protect it as well. It's kind of a self-enclosed in barrier. Um, and then marked the tree with a bunch of orange tape again knowing that that was it. Of course, got back on my Onyx and dropped the pin where I left it, um, and knowing that was going to be my spot for in the morning. Having finally made it to the truck, and then even now, like looking at it you know, months later, do you see more solo packouts in your future? <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't want to by any means. I know, I know I'm capable of doing it. I, I don't recommend it, and I, I don't think I would like to, but... Yeah, if the only time frame I got to hunt and no one's able to go with me, then yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go again, but it's not ideal for sure. Yeah, it's a like if you have to out of necessity type thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you, I mean, you mentioned earlier, but I mean, you're very, very active um, in terms of like year round staying in shape and um, yeah, running, lifting, everything. So just it's always important to keep in mind for listeners too, because there are guys who, who just flat out struggle to find somebody to elk hunt with. Um, it's no joke when you're solo for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have to be, if you even are going to do it cause you have to do it, you still need to be physically able to do it. And there's a lot that goes into that. What do you feel on packing heavy specifically of all the things you do physically to train like what specifically helps you be ready to pack heavy loads like that um i think it's more you know muscle endurance and um than anything else i mean it's through training aspects and through what i know um for an elk hunter and someone who's running around the mountains all the time um muscle endurance outweighs muscle strength than anything so guys in the gym lifting i think to really optimize yourself in the mountains is more about like hit training, high intensity interval training, long dur- long duration training, 
um, and just building good muscle endurance because how often are you really packing heavy loads out of the mountain? Like every time you go out in the mountains, you're not constantly carrying 80 pounds of elk around you in the mountains. So strength training isn't going to be the most optimal way to train your body for these mountains. You know, majority of the time you're hiking around mountains and you're hunting and you're not packing out. So most of your time and most of your muscles are climbing mountains and climbing over peaks and, and building the endurance so that you're actually not tired. So when the time comes to it, you're not fully exhausted now that there's an elk down on the ground. So yeah, I think training aspect is, you know, it's more about muscle endurance than anything else. Anything else from that story or just anything you learned from that hunt that we haven't covered that uh, you would want to share? I just think, you know, there's so rare opportunities that you'll get when, when being able to draw back on an elk and there, you know, you are mostly in the mountains that, you know, shooting aspect is, is so key to be so dialed because if I miss that opportunity, I don't think I probably would ever had another elk encounter like all year. And, you know, so many people are such limited on time um, that, you know, you spend seven days in the mountains and the first four days are just walking around your bow and maybe you get an encounter here and there. You don't want to miss that rare opportunity that you get when an elk comes in. And I'm so thankful that I shoot constantly all the time um, that I was able to take that center shot at 35 yards and and know that um i'm smoking this bull like and i think so like shooting angles and and, you know being fit and hiking around the mountains and shooting your bow constantly and just being confident with your your shooting capability is gonna have that confidence knowing where a bull's moving around that you're gonna be able to ace it and and lace that bull that one opportunity you're gonna get because there's so many i grew up hunting elk with buddies and I missed so many opportunities in the past uh, because I thought I was a good shooter um, and missed completely whether because he was on angle so I think just practicing more in in terrain practicing with your pack on shooting a lot more angles going to competitions um, even working out and then going shooting your bow or going on a trail run and then grabbing your bow at the range and shooting is is going to ultimately help you um, really seal that one rare or those few rare encounters that you're going to have. Yeah. Perfect. Such a good word. Will. thanks so much for the time, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you much uh, as well. Appreciate it. As always, guys, we say it, we truly mean it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, if you can leave us a review in iTunes, share this episode with a friend or send us your feedback. We'd really appreciate it. Again, just email podcast at exomountgear.com if you need to get a hold of us for anything. Go to exomountgear.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe, you can enter the giveaway, and you can find previous episodes. We'll catch you next week.